is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. As our listeners know, we discuss all types of cases on Murder in the Rain. Some cases are solved with a killer behind bars. Others are solved with a murderer still on the streets or back on the streets after serving time. We also spend a lot of episodes talking about unsolved cases, ones that after not making progress on leads, slowly fade from the limelight, lose attention from full-time detectives, and go on to become cold cases. We've really enjoyed the uptick in these types of cases getting solved thanks to a new tip or improvements in DNA analysis, but it doesn't happen very often where we discuss the in-between phase. What goes on when a case becomes cold but isn't solved? We, of course, have talked to detectives who explain that they use their free time to look into these cases, and some police departments are lucky enough to have cold case detectives who aren't just using their free time. But there are other people out there who dedicate their time to these cases, and I'm really excited that today we get to discuss a little bit about what that's like. In today's episode, we're going to explore the unsolved murder of Linda Malcolm, a Navy veteran whose body was found engulfed in flames in her Port Orchard home. Despite multiple leads, the case is still unsolved. But with the help of the right people, it may not stay that way for long. With us today are Jennifer Bukaltz and George Jared, who are part of a cold case investigative team through the American Military University. Jennifer is former U.S. Army counterintelligence, an instructor in criminal justice and forensic science, and works as an investigator for the El Paso County Sheriff's Department. George is an investigative journalist who has written multiple true crime books. The duo have a podcast called Break the Case. Their work aided in solving another cold case, which was featured on one of the early seasons of their podcast. Linda's story is featured in season three. So we invited them to the show to talk a little bit about how they handle cold cases and what makes Linda's case so unique and solvable. In the very early hours of the morning of April 30th, 2008, a 911 call was made from a resident on the 1000 block of Sydney Avenue in Port Orchard, Washington. The caller told dispatchers that the rental house of Linda Malcolm was on fire. The call was made at 3.58 a.m., and by 4.21, multiple fire trucks sat outside of the small two-bedroom home. Nearby trees and shrubs were also ablaze, and there were power lines downed in the yard. In roughly 40 minutes, the fire was put out, but the house was damaged beyond repair. The neighbors informed firefighters that they believed Linda was still inside the home. Two of Linda's neighbors attempted to break into the home while it was still on fire because they believed she was inside. Unfortunately, their efforts, which were not fruitful, likely ended up fueling the fire. When they tried to break in, they took down one of the doors, which introduced oxygen to the fire, which only made it stronger because fire requires oxygen to thrive. This, of course, isn't a well-known fact, and when a person is acting in an emergency to save a life, that is likely not something they're going to stop to think about. Heeding the neighbor's warning that someone was inside, first responders immediately stepped into action once the fire was extinguished. 
Nearly immediately, they discovered Linda was in the home, in the main bedroom, which was in the southeast corner of the house. There inside, on the bed, they discovered Linda's charred remains. Her body, though burnt, was in fairly decent condition, and it was quite obvious that she had been the victim of multiple stab wounds. Linda had been murdered, and then her home was set on fire, likely to cover it up. Linda Louise Malcolm was born in Springfield, Illinois, on January 21, 1961, making her 47 years old at the time of her death. She hailed from a large family with eight siblings, including five sisters and three brothers. In 1984, Linda enlisted in the Navy, where she spent nine years serving our country. After being stationed in Kitsap County and then honorably discharged, Linda decided to stay in the area and become a paralegal. But she had recently accepted a new job and was set to move to Bremerton, which was about 15 minutes away. In fact, she was supposed to make that move the day after her body was found. Linda had lived in her rental house on Sydney Avenue for more than a decade, but her landlord was looking to tear the building down and build an apartment complex, plans they were very open about. So Linda was able to plan her next move accordingly and secure an apartment and a job in Bremerton. Linda had lived in her rental house on Sydney Avenue for more than a decade, but her landlord was looking to tear the building down and build an apartment complex, plans they were very open about. So Linda was able to plan her next move accordingly and secure a job and an apartment in Bremerton, one that her friends say she wanted to keep the location of quiet. The day prior to her murder, Linda had sent an email out to her family mentioning that she had just landed a new job and that she was moving and that, quote, the black clouds have lifted, meaning she had gotten through some dark times and was excited for her new life. Her sister Cynthia noted that she finally sounded happy. Linda loved karaoke, cooking, fishing, and spending time with the people she cared about, including some of her neighbors and friends she had at the local bar. Her friends and family describe her as happy-go-lucky, fun, and friendly. She was very social and well-known in the area. She was fit and petite, and as a single woman with no kids, people took notice. You may hear Linda described as promiscuous, and around here that's not a bad thing. As we say, you do you. But it is important, as it could have played a factor in why she was murdered. There is a lot of information about this case that we're not privy to, but one thing that has come out of what I've read and from the people I've talked to is everyone agrees that this was a very violent murder with all signs pointing to it being a fight for her life, and it looks like she likely knew her attacker. It was personal. Linda's body was charred by the fire that was purposely set to her home after she was gruesomely attacked and murdered. Even though the fire did get to her body, it was put out before it completely destroyed it, making it obvious that she had been attacked while she was completely nude and she sustained multiple stab wounds. Her body had been found in her bedroom on her waterbed. Most typically in the cases we cover, the discovery of nude bodies tend to go hand in hand with sexually motivated crimes. But in this case, they believed she was attacked while she was sleeping nude and that it was not a crime of some sort of sexual nature. Once the autopsy was conducted, they discovered Linda had been stabbed a total of 24 times. This included slashes across her hands, wrists, and arms, as well as several puncture stab wounds. Four of those stab wounds were lethal and have been described as, quote, high level of overkill. 
In the blog, you'll find a drawing from Jennifer indicating where Linda's wounds were on her body. And you can note that the vast majority were on her upper body and focused on her chest. But she also had several to her back and her hands. Many of the wounds on her hands were slash marks and gashes, which alludes to the fact that she attempted to defend herself. Several experts that have reviewed the autopsy findings believe she may have had some kind of weapon and that the perpetrator was attempting to disarm her with those wounds. So it looks like they were slashing at her to knock something out of her hands is what most people agree. Gotcha. That makes sense. The wounds from Linda's body also helped to tell a story. For one, there was a mix of vertical and horizontal stab wounds. You'll hear us discuss the horizontal wounds later in the episode, but there is a possibility that those stab wounds could shed light on the perpetrator having some kind of knowledge about stabbing. If a knife is horizontal, it can more easily slip between the ribs, which could be why we see so many horizontal stabs on the chest and not the back, but it could also be a complete coincidence. Experts consulted by the cold case team believe that the perpetrator used a hammer grip with the knife. So let's talk about grip for a second. I looked this up because I had a very hard time visualizing it while he was explaining it. Um, So I needed to like see a picture and maybe get a couple of different versions. So the main types of grips are saber, modified saber, Filipino and hammer. And I'll put a resource in our blog so you can see the images of those grips. And thank you to jfisher.com for that. So the hammer grip is the main grip technique people would use. You would be holding the knife with the blade away from your body with the tip facing up and the length of the sharp blade facing down. So to me, this means you're likely stabbing upwards or horizontally, which could mean they aren't that much bigger than Linda. So that's kind of like the traditional hold of like what you would picture yeah not like a stabbing downward but like you're holding it out like you're in a knife like a knife fight like imagine you're a a shark or a jet (laughs) having a dance fight okay you know how they that's how they held him in the musical that's the only way i could picture it perfect reference for me thank you (laughs) like kind of like stabbing out from the waist exactly i'm not like how you should where you hold it with like the bottom of your hand at the blade yeah and it's definitely going to be different based on the type of knife which we'll get into So I personally think it means you're like stabbing upwards or outwards. I'm no expert. But to me, I was like, yeah, that maybe they're about the same size or this person isn't much bigger. But there were a few stab wounds that indicated the perpetrator had a considerable height over her. So that could mean they're taller or she was on her knees or laying down and they were stabbing over her. So those wounds, they were all different. And you can see that in the image. You'll see horizontal, vertical. You'll see slashes. Um, So, but it's very clear that it was passionate and violent. It's thought that the blade was one inch wide and between four and five inches long with a smooth single edge blade and no hilt. So that's a regular kitchen type knife, which I've learned during this case is typical. Statistically speaking, most stabbings involve a kitchen knife. Now, having a knife that had a hilt would allow someone to stab and not have their hands slide down the blade as it gets slippery with blood. So by not having a hilt like this knife, it's highly likely that the perpetrator cut themselves. So we do know that there was DNA found in her home, collected from her home that didn't belong to her. And it very likely could be blood from this perpetrator. One of the things you'll hear in the interview Jen mentions is um, the amount of blood they think may have come from the perpetrator. So stay tuned for that. 
Now, the scene itself was very bloody. That perpetrator likely would have been completely covered. And so for some context of how much blood would have been involved, Linda was stabbed in her lungs and her heart and her liver. Now, the heart would have kept pumping even though there was a stab wound. So that blood would have likely come out every time it beat. But she also had a lot of blood in her lungs. Now, one of the experts said they estimated about two liters per lung. And that's insane because we only have about five to six liters in our bodies. So she literally drowned in her own blood in her own body. It's just very horrific to picture that. It probably wasn't a long fight, but I imagine anyone who's maybe had a near drowning experience that probably lasted a long time when you're experiencing it. In addition to her two dozen stabs and slashes, she had blunt force trauma to her head. This could have been caused by being hit with an object or falling and hitting her head. The force was strong enough to knock her out, but it wasn't fatal as her skull was completely intact. So we know the crime was violent, up close, personal, and bloody. Then the murderer lit the place on fire, attempting to destroy evidence. Now, we're not sure if that includes blood evidence, their own clothing, or if there was anything in the home that was incriminating, or if it was to destroy her body. That's not really been something we've talked about. But what what else do we know in terms of what happened before and after? So before the murder, on April 29th at 2.16 p.m., Linda made a purchase at Safeway using her debit card, for $116.52. She then may have chatted on the phone with a friend, which is something that came out of interviews, but they don't have access to the official phone records to corroborate that. So the time frame that they're assuming she was killed in was anywhere from 2.20 after she left Safeway to 4 a.m. when that 911 call was made. I would assume a bit earlier than that as the perpetrator lit the fire. So now you have a little bit of background on Linda's case. Let's dive into the conversation with Jennifer and George, who have been spending every spare minute trying to solve this cold case and have a ton of information for us, including the most up-to-date timeline of events, the interesting findings they have come across, and their own theories. Well, hello, Jen and George. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Good. Doing great. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So why don't we just kick things off with letting everyone know, you know who you are and what you're doing um, and, and talk, we'll get, get into Linda's case, I guess. Go ahead, George. Uh, I'm, I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. Um, I've been an investigative journalist for many years. I've worked on a lot of high profile murder cases. Uh, I'm based in Arkansas, but I actually am from the Northwest. I grew up near Portland. So. Oh, wow. I actually, it was kind of, you know, this Linda Malcolm case for me, was kind of personally gratifying to go up there and work on it just because I have a lot of family that still live in the Northwest. So that's kind of my background. I've written four true crime books. Uh, actually, Jennifer co-wrote one of them. So um, that's my background. I also do a podcast called Diamond State Murder Board, where I update people on cases that I'm working on, mostly as a journalist. Great. And my name's Jen Buchholz. I am an Army veteran. I was a counterintelligence agent in the Army for several years. Later, after my military time, I transitioned over to teaching forensics and criminal justice at American Military University. Um, I've also been a, a curriculum developer and trainer of foreign law enforcement officers for the State Department. 
unfortunately, that contract ended when COVID came around. So at that point, I was looking for other employment and ended up um, getting a job as a criminal investigator with my local sheriff's office here in Colorado. So right now, I'm a part-time criminal investigator and part-time instructor of forensics and criminal justice. And through our work at the university, George and I also host a real-time investigative podcast called Break the Case. Tell us a little bit about what you do with Break the Case. Well, it is truly an investigative podcast where we take listeners along on our investigation. We try to put our episodes out as soon as we can after we've taken some kind of investigative action, but we always travel to the location where our victim was killed at least once, and we usually will go there before we make any public announcement about our involvement in the case. Mm-hmm. That gives us the opportunity to be in town without the killer knowing that we're there or what we're doing. And so we can kind of knock on doors without anybody having a heads up, which is nice. Yeah, we've been associated for about five years now. What happened was, ironically enough, Jennifer and I didn't know each other. She lives in Colorado Springs. I live about an hour outside of Memphis. And um, there was a case in Arkansas, the murder of Rebecca Gould, that was unsolved at the time. And um, Jen and I became associated because I was a I, I was a guest or a participant in the Helen Gone podcast, which I don't know, Jen, it was probably eight or 10 episodes. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And it kind of went viral around the country in 2018. And it just highlighted this case that um, was not being solved. And there was a lot of problems with the way the police were, were approaching the case. Jen heard me on the podcast. She cont- she sent me an email on January 30th, 2019. And then we had a phone conversation that lasted three hours and 21 minutes. After oh, wow. That. <laughs> Just we a casual because... chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when I was like, oh, boy, I'm, I'm in this case. <laughs> and uh, the thing of it was with her, you know, I for years, I, I was actually out there when they found this murder victim's body. I was working as a journalist and I knew her father pretty well and we'd become friends. And there were things about her case. It's the only murder case in the history of the United States where the murder weapon was likely a loose piano leg. And the murderer moved her body and cleaned up the mess inside um, her sort of ex-boyfriend's house. He was allegedly at work at the time of the murder. And, you know, there were some behavioral aspects of the of the crime that I just couldn't get my mind off of. And the detective in the case just wasn't paying attention to them, you know, that the body had been moved. There had been a cleanup. And I thought those things were really important. And Jen came along and, you know, we were kind of like kindred spirits on that. She, that she honed in on those things, you know, so we kind of started this odyssey in the Rebecca Gould murder case. Jen came to Arkansas. I don't know, probably less than a month after our first phone conversation, she stayed here for a week with her husband, just studying, you know, like the case and the geographic profiling and all this other stuff. We started a Facebook page later on that year. And we actually lured um, this guy named William Miller onto the page. And he was the first cousin of the girl's sort of ex-boyfriend that she was staying with the weekend that she was murdered. You know, it's kind of one of those on again, off again, you know, relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, about a year later in Cottage Grove, Oregon, by the way. um, Oh, yeah. He uh, it was during COVID. He um, he was living in the Philippines at the time and he was working on oil rigs all over the world. And uh, he he couldn't get back. He wasn't he wasn't a Filipino national, so he couldn't get back into the country. His mom and brother were actually living in Cottage Grove at the time. And so he was coming back and staying with them. 
Well, a, the, a new detective on the case decided to interview him and he interviewed him in Cottage Grove. And during that interview, he confessed to her murder. Wow. Actually, and Jen's interviewed him a couple times in prison. I interviewed him the first time in prison, actually, just last Thursday. And he's also a confessed serial killer. Wow. And we're trying to figure out if that's true or not. He did mm-hmm. give some details about these other five women that he allegedly killed. So that's kind of how we we got together. And then, you know, we've kind of started this odyssey again of, you know, picking a case. And, you know, that's how we led us to Linda Malcolm. So your cases are are typically, are they long, cold cases? Rebecca was killed in 2004. Our second case, the victim was killed in 1975. And then Linda was killed in 2008. So I would consider all of them having been cold cases at some point. And that's that's more suitable for us because we know like on a fresh case, police are not going to share details or the case file. Right. So we have a better chance of getting more information on a cold case. And police, as you know, across the country are just limited on resources and time. And a lot of them don't have cold case detectives or a unit. Um, so we just have a better chance of being successful in helping the investigating authority if we pick a case that's, you know, at least 10 or more years old. So how do you go about choosing the case that you're going to focus on? So we were in limbo because, you know, Rebecca's um, now convicted killer had been arrested. We were waiting on trial, we, you know, and obviously we were um, successful in that case, although we learned a lot of lessons along the way. And I kind of told George, I'm like, I think let's try it again, you know. And I said, let's make this a little more official. So I went to AMU and like talked to my boss and we we've formed this university cold case team. It's still developing or evolving, but it is there now. And they do provide us um, like the podcast support and media support, like have the ability to publish articles and they'll get them on different media platforms and stuff like that. Um, but we are self-funded. They don't provide us any money for travel or expenses or any of that. That's all out of our own pocket, but we're happy to do it because we have a passion for it and a skill set. I put out a bulletin through the university saying that we were taking case submissions which we get anyways, periodically. Mm -hmm. But we got about 80 people that submitted cases and went through all of them, did some research. And there was about five or six, I think, George, that kind of were at the top of the list. We felt they were ones that had not had much attention and that we could probably, you know, gain some forward progress in those. But it was actually Linda's nephew, Mike Booker, who's a student at the university that submitted her case. So it's an interesting personal link there. Yeah. And so he had submitted it and, um, you know, we liked the case. We reached out to him first and then he put us in touch with Linda's, with his mother, who's one of Linda's siblings. And then we talked to her and the rest of the siblings and they were all on board. And so we got started just over a year ago on this case. Talk to me about how you start gathering information on a case like this? Are you doing interviews initially? Are you talking to the police to get any case files you can? Just walk us through what that process was like in Linda's case. Well, Jen, I, you know, for the first part of the process is we try to talk to the family, obviously. We try to get, we try to gauge or we try to figure out exactly where the investigation stands if it's possible. We don't typically get case files because most of these cold case I mean, these cases are cold, but the police will never say that they're cold because sure. a lot of states, if they say they're cold, then there's a possibility that the police will have to give those case files to family members or, or the public. So they always say they're doing something. But when typically meet with the family members, 
and then we just start forming a game plan, Jen. I mean, we mm-hmm. we make a we make a, a list of people that we want to try to track down and interview. You know, we don't like using the word suspects necessarily, but we definitely try to make a list of persons of interest. Mm-hmm. We usually have somebody. I mean, Jen, it's always the case. We always have somebody at the top of the list that we want to start with. Sure. And so we we track them down and we yeah. go and interview them. Um, and you know, we've tracked people. My gosh, Jen. I mean, literally, we've tracked people all over the country. Yeah, when we went to CrimeCon in September, actually, our main um, objective of being down in Florida was to track down someone that Linda had known in, you know, in in the years before her murder, who we were unable to get a hold of. We couldn't find a good working phone number, neither could police. Like, let's go, George. And so we literally drove an hour and 15 minutes or whatever from CrimeCon um, and knocked knocked on the person's door and they were home thankfully and invited us in so we go to far lengths <laughs> and we only work one case at a time too this is our only focus um, we do not we will not do more than one um, and that gives us the ability to just you know take it as far as we can with Linda's um, I mean really with any case obviously we need family buy-in we need their approval to to go forward if they don't want us to do it then we're not going to because um, right. we need their support. We know we're not always going to have great support from law enforcement, but we need it from the family. So, I mean, they were super excited, but they didn't have a lot of information about her murder. Um, some family members, you know, some cases the family members have a lot. Linda's siblings hadn't even been able to get a copy of her autopsy. And so that was the first, that's where we started, was I contacted the coroner. Actually, one of her sisters contacted him first, and then I spoke with him. And he was like, absolutely, you guys deserve to have this. It's been 16 years. There's no reason that the family shouldn't be able to see this. Well, the police chief actually threatened to take him to court to stop him from releasing it to the family and us. Um, Thankfully, that never happened. Um, I don't think they ever ended up going to court. Just the 30-day deadline expired without anything happening. So the coroner released the written autopsy to the family. I flew up to Washington last November and met with the coroner in person, and he provided me all the autopsy photos on a thumb drive because obviously you don't want to give those to the family. Right. But they're super helpful for us. So I was so thankful that he was so willing to be of assistance. And and you know, when I met with police, like they were clearly upset that I'd had a that I had a copy. And I said, listen, I'm not here to like publicize stuff. I'm never gonna put a victim's autopsy online or their photos, no way. Mm-hmm. But we need that document. It's almost the most important document in a case, I think. Wouldn't you say, George? Yeah, I totally agree with that. That is the most important. And I'm sorry I forgot to mention that that's also another I don't want to say it's a criteria, but it is kind of a criteria for us is that we have to have you know, that autopsy report, because we have to have a place to start. Jen and I are not, we're not like knife experts. We're not arson experts, but we have people on our team that we've brought in through the years. And I always like telling this because Alan Haskins is very intricately involved in um, the Linda Malcolm case. And he's our arson expert. Um, It's funny because Jen told me, I, I don't know what Jen was probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. I don't even remember now, but she, she called me up one day and we were just chatting. Like we pretty much talk almost every day. And she's like, we really need an arson expert. And I was just like, oh, I just kept saying, thinking to myself, I, where are we going to find an arson expert? <laughs> and turns out old George forgot that his <laughs> daughter played softball and basketball with a guy named Alan or uh, with a girl named Bailey, whose dad is Alan Haskins. And he, and he runs the fire Academy 
um, not too far from where I live. And he was a fire chief for many years and he is an arson expert. He's, um, you know, insurance companies have used him, you know, to uh, in cases and things like that. And the guy has got a, just a brilliant mind and he's a super great guy. And so we brought him in. And of course, he's not only a very good arson expert, we can pretty much talk to him about any aspect of a murder case. He could, he would have been a great detective too. Mm -hmm, for sure. So we bring people like Alan along with us in these cases and they are super helpful. And also they, they help the police. Like Alan signed an NDA with the Port Orchard police department and he has access. He, he analyzed those reports and he generated a report himself and he sent it to them. And that is a resource that a very small, you know, police force like that, they're not going to be able to bring in somebody like him. It's an all hands on deck thing for us. Yep. I love that. Well, let's jump into some of the findings that you've discovered over the past year and a half. Let's start with the autopsy, because one of the episodes of your podcast that really resonated with me was when you were speaking to Diana, Linda's sister, and she said she was under the impression that her sister's death was essentially painless. And then come the autopsy results. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? What did you learn? Yeah. So the family had been told that Linda was only stabbed like three or four times and that it was a very quick death. Um, and then when we got the autopsy, we discovered she'd actually been stabbed 24 times. So that's a hu obviously a huge difference. It's also a huge clue, but it was really emotionally and traumatically like difficult for her siblings to learn mm -hmm. that she did suffer probably not real long but long enough to know like i'm going to probably lose my life in this fight um but what uh, the other thing well we learned a lot from autopsy but another thing is that linda was able to put up a fight she was not overpowered immediately she has a lot of defensive wounds on her hands and her forearms and so that tells us that whoever attacked her, you know, could not overpower her immediately. And that's probably a big clue that in the end, when there's an arrest, it's going to be like, yep, that's why. So, you know, it's not like, I mean, she's five foot two, like 105 pounds. So if you have some bodybuilder that comes in and attacks her, I mean, he wouldn't even need a knife. I mean, he could just put her on the ground or up against the wall with his hands, probably. Right. Um, so it's someone that felt the need to utilize this weapon against her, which may mean they felt like they could not, you know, that they were more evenly matched mm -hmm. and kind of sensed that Linda was going to be able to put up a fight. So they needed an advantage. The one thing about it, I think, Jen, the thing that you and I were most shocked about, besides the number of stab wounds being so far off from what the family was told, was the fact that she had four lethal Yes. Stab wounds that in and of themselves mm -hmm. would have probably killed her without immediate medical attention. And even if she had had immediate medical attention, there's a good possibility she never yeah. would have survived just one of those. So whoever did this again, back to what Jen said, huge clue. Whoever did this was in an absolute murderous rage. Right. And she has blunt force trauma to the right side of her head, too. It's definitely not a knife wound. So. It just tells you um, that this was a dynamic fight that went on between her and her killer. And, you know, they may have started with a different weapon and, you know, either got her in the head or they pushed her and her head went into something. But she has a really significant blunt force trauma wound to the right side of her head. And like George said, she had four lethal injuries, two to the liver, one to her heart, 
and then one to her spine in the back. And that's another thing is that she had wounds to her front and her back. So again, we know that this, you know, this was a dynamic fight where both people are moving around. In your fifth episode, you had your knife expert, Jeff Schaefer on, and I found that to be a very interesting conversation. Um, what, what about the stab wounds? Cause there was some uniqueness to those and it's, it, it painted a picture. I think I found that really interesting. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, he determined that she was stabbed with a knife that just has a single edge blade. So if you think about a kitchen knife, only one side of the blade is sharpened. So that's the style of blade that was used against her, but it was a small blade. So either from like a paring knife or a um, pocket knife, something like that. This wasn't like a big, you know, chopping style kitchen knife that was used against her. It was only about an inch wide. So he determined that. And then he had a really interesting observation that we never would have thought of. But the wounds, most of the wounds to Linda's front side are horizontal. And he said that could be indicative of someone with some kind of training because they would know to turn the knife sideways so it will slide between the ribs. Um, if you hold a knife in a traditional manner, upright or vertical, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, often it w- the blade will get stuck between two ribs. But um, it could have also just been the positioning of where the killer was in relation to Linda. We don't, I mean, I'm sure that she was upright for some of this, but at some point she obviously went down. So the killer could have had her on the ground and been perpendicular, um, sure. holding the knife vertically to their hand. It is an interesting thought, though. I, it really I never is. Would have thought of that as I mean, well. Me either. Said that. <laughs> I was like, whoa, yeah. that makes sense. You know, once you yeah. hear it. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'll say I'll say this about Jeff. I've known Jeff a long time, and he he could be a detective too. I mean he he gives us so many insights beyond just the knife stuff. He he just has all he just knows about all these different aspects. And when he looks at things, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation, Jen, with him or us or you where he doesn't bring out some detail or some theory that just I just don't know that we would think of all this stuff and that's the value of a crowdsourcing team like we've got yeah and that's why we like to involve as many people who want to be involved and not just experts I mean it doesn't matter what your background is we preach this all the time we don't care what your background is you have something to offer to a case because you have different life experiences and ways of thinking and that's what we need because me and George can't think of everything right yeah and just a perfect example of that is in in rebecca gould's case you know our friend miranda ward um she was a stay-at-home mom living in lebeck texas and she was just really into genealogy and she had dated rebecca's sort of ex-boyfriend that was a suspect in that case and uh, when william miller joined our facebook page i mean here's the thing jennifer and i would have figured out eventually that he was the first cousin of this guy but <laughs> but she knew it almost immediately because she had already created she's into genealogy and she created family tree she, she mapped so this, the whole family tree wow <laughs> and so this guy from the philippines who his name is william miller i mean this is how i mean william miller we thought this was just like a, a phony account from some one of the relatives in the case and they were just going to act as a mole i mean we thought it was a fake name but it turned out to be a real person and he was giving theories on our page and talking and he was DMing Jennifer. Yeah, he was giving theories about this woman's murder and he's now confessed to. Oh and so he goodness. was operating. It's crazy. Yeah. They can't yeah, help themselves. <laughs> no, that was a lesson we learned. We're like, oh yeah, they, they want to know everything going on. <laughs> <laughs> With regards to the knife wounds, I think those are the main observations that we know of at this point. Jeff also opined that Linda 
he thinks there's a very good chance Linda armed herself with something in her right hand because she has significantly more and severe slices to her right hand. And he said, I mean, she could have had like a wine bottle or a, a knife of her own or what, something, you know, some kind of blunt object, who knows what. But he said, you know, if you're going up against somebody and you have a knife and they have some kind of weapon too, you're going to try to disarm them first. And so he thinks that's why she has these additional wounds to her right hand. Oh, like a, they, they were slicing at her to get yeah. her to drop it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things you also mentioned um, earlier was you got access to a lot of images when you went to talk to the medical examiner who gave you the mm -hmm. autopsy findings. And in that were crime scene photos. Um, yes. Why don't we jump into those? What did you sure. learn from those images about um, the arson and what happened at her home? Yeah, the thankfully, not only did I forgot to mention that, not only did we get the autopsy photos, but we got all the photos the coroner's office took at the scene. Now, those photos are from before any really seen investigation was done, like before the fire department came in and sifted things, right? So oh, wow. a lot of the photos, it's just like piles of ash and the foam from when the, you know, the firefighters used to put out the fire. We cannot see the floors of the house, for example. Like, so we don't know where blood evidence was found, except under Linda, we do have that photo. But um, so there's some things that are photos can't tell us mm -hmm. but they're still very very informative and what we noticed right away is linda's body was not the point of origin and usually in a homicide arson case they will pour accelerant on the body so that told us right away they weren't concerned with covering up a murder because her body really wasn't that badly charred mm -hmm. thankfully they were able to do a full autopsy and everything so and even, you know, do a sexual assault kit on her and all that stuff. So um, she, her body was not badly damaged at all. So we knew that the fire didn't start by her or probably in the bedroom where she was found. And so going through these photos with Alan, he's like, the, the, the worst of the damage is up at the front corner of the house in her living room, which is literally the farthest point in the house from where she was found. And I said, Alan, is this like common or what? He's like, I've never been to a, a scene where the body was not the point of origin. And we've asked other experts about that too. Um, I actually met, I was super lucky. I got to meet with Paul Holes recently. We live in the same town. And he sat down with me to go through Linda's case. And I asked him the same question. Like out of all the homicide arsons you've been to, was the fire ever set away from the body? He's like, not a one. This is the only one I know of. So there's something to that. Like, it's really important. Sure. <laughs> uh, we don't know for sure why yet, but we have theories on that. But that was one of the biggest revelations. And also, although the fire did, you know, so, a lot of damage to the house, it didn't destroy the house. And we do know police were able to collect a lot of evidence, including forensic evidence. So if that's what the killer was trying to destroy, they did not succeed. That is very true. And that's awesome news mm -hmm. because... Now you can retest it, hopefully. You got it. Yep. And they are. <laughs> so I, yep. I assume you're able to confirm things like um, that she was definitely deceased before the fire was set. Is that the case? That yes. is true. Yes. Yeah. She had um, no, she didn't yeah. have any carbon dioxide or um, anything in, in her lungs. I mean, she, 
she was definitely dead before that fire started. She and she may have been dead for a time before the fire mm-hmm. started. Yeah, her trachea and esophagus are clear and and all that. Okay. So it's for sure, um, it's for sure that she had passed before the fire started. And do you know, or has it been confirmed if an accelerant was used? I think yes. Our understanding is yes. We do not know what type of accelerant or exactly where it was, but my understanding is yes, they did use something to start this fire. I remember in one of your episodes, someone mentioned that the shed outside had gas for the lawnmower and that could possibly be an option. So I wasn't sure there were other items that maybe were considered as well. Our arson expert has some theories as to as to what was actually used. He's got some pretty interesting theories. We're not able to disclose that at this time, but mm-hmm. um, just know if the killer is listening to this, which I'm sure they will be, that he is on to you. So he only, he knows exactly what you used um, to start that fire. Juicy. I wish yep. I could know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One of these days we all will. <laughs> so after doing all these interviews and talking to the experts and uh, any access you can get from some of these files, what is the most up-to-date timeline that you can share with us? Yeah, we have a pretty big window of death. Um, we know that she made a purchase at Safeway Grocery Store, I believe it was 216 that Tuesday afternoon. And by the way, we're going back to April 29th of 2008. Um, this fire was discovered in the early morning hours of April 30th, 2008, and that was a Wednesday morning. So she was either killed on a Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. So we know she's at the grocery store that afternoon, and then her best friend says that they spoke around somewhere between 4 and 6 o'clock for a while. Um, we do not have her phone records, but police do. Mm-hmm. From there, we don't know. Um, we do not have any proof of life from about 6 p.m. on. So she could have been killed, like I said, Tuesday evening or night or into the early morning hours of Wednesday, but we have about a nine-hour window of death. I do believe she had to be dead by 3.30 a.m. at the latest because the fire was set okay so here's the timeline for the fire the newspaper delivery people which was a married couple they delivered her newspaper around 3 45 a.m that's from the original case file report and when we talked to them and by the way they live in the netherlands now and let me tell you how long it took to find them but we did (laughs) so not in person but over the phone um (laughs) that would have been a fun trip though it would have been fun it would have been a good excuse to go to europe um anyways so their story is consistent. 345, they threw the paper. The wife would throw the paper out the passenger window of the car. So obviously the window's down. She's like, I did not smell anything. I did not see any evidence of a fire. I didn't see any cars in her driveway. I didn't see any people. She said um, Linda always wanted her paper on the front porch. So the wife threw it. They stopped for a few seconds, made sure it hit its mark. And then they went on their way. So then the fire is reported by the neighbor at 358. So we have a 13-minute window of when the fire was set. And by the time the neighbor reported it, the front of the house was basically fully engulfed. So it had to have been started at least a few minutes before that. Um, But it's a really short window of time, which is interesting. I don't know if they just got that lucky or if they actually knew Linda was getting a paper, so they waited until those people went by or what. Yeah, so firefighters were there within a few minutes. And by 5 a.m., they had the fire extinguished and her body was found shortly after that. So that's the timeline that we have for now. 
Yeah, and Jen, I'll add to that. You, the thing about it is, is that the the timing of the fire is actually a clue, because it we don't believe in coincidences. And one of these days, we'll have Alan come on and explain to you why coincidences aren't a thing, because um, he always has a great explanation for it. <laughs> the thing of it is, is that the fire is the the papers delivered around three forty five, and the fire starts basically within you know ten minutes or so. That is very, to us, that's very indicative that they were just waiting for the paper to be delivered because they knew that oh, would yeah. be the one time that someone, even at that early hour, would definitely be at her house. And so they are waiting for the paper to be thrown. And then as soon as they leave, they start the fire and then they get out. So that's pretty much, um, I mean, that's a, just a big clue for us. Well, it's creepy thinking they were just sitting there waiting too and potentially watching them. Mm-hmm. And it yes. also, if that's true, then that means this is somebody that knew Linda very well, which mm -hmm. we believe anyways. Um, there's no way in my mind I can attribute this to like a stranger homicide. This had to be somebody that she knew. Right. Um, and we believe, or I should say, uh, it's my theory, I think George agrees, but we think something happened between Linda and her killer in the 48 to 72 hours before her death um, that led to this because it's not a well-planned homicide. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, I know a gun makes noise, but it's like, it's way easier to shoot somebody than get in this huge fight, you know, on their turf in their house. Right. Um, there's a lot easier ways to commit homicide than what was done here. So we just, we think there's a little pre-planning, but not a whole lot. And so that indicates that something happened with her and her killer in the few days prior to her murder. Uh, and Jen, I was just going to add that, you know, there's also a good possibility that her killer injured themselves during this attack just because of the fact that it was such a I like the term I like the term that Jen used that a dynamic fight between them mm -hmm. and you know one thing about a knife like the one that Jeff theorizes was used it doesn't have a hilt and so when you know when your hands get all bloody and you're in this big bloody fight that your the knife is going to slip up and down your hand and so it's very possible that this killer cut themselves up pretty bad too and so that um you know, that's another reason why, you know, using a knife is just it's just not a great weapon if you're pre-planning to kill somebody. I mean, it's good for us because then DNA probably gets left behind. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> why don't we yes. talk about the top theories? Can, what can you share that you think um, should be considered when when police are looking at this case again? You know, what's funny, Jen, is that we've had this conversation. It is we've obviously collected a list of people that we think um could possibly have committed this this crime and this is this case is a little baffling in one way because we have so many i hate to use the term but we have we have several good candidates and mm -hmm. we're, we're we go back and forth about which one we think you know would be the better candidate um we haven't been able to rule out a male or female you know we, we think it still could possibly be either one or maybe both you know there might be somebody else involved in this murder Jen, I don't know. How much can we talk about that stuff? Well, I'll just give my top theory. So my, like, this isn't just, to me, this is not just an argument that escalated in the moment. Um, I think there's a perceived offense or an actual offense here. And so Linda was, um, she was kind of promiscuous, but whatever. She was single, you know, um, no kids, but you, know, you can do whatever you want. So one of my top theories is that she may have slept with somebody's spouse or significant other, and then the significant other found out. 
I could see that leading to this level of rage. Um, or she could have maybe threatened someone's livelihood, meaning threatened to like turn them in for some sort of criminal behavior. But most everybody we talk to that knows her is like, no way would Linda do that. She's she's not a snitch. And what what would be the criminal behavior? You know, again, it had to be something really significant to take the risk of getting convicted of homicide versus whatever other criminal activity you're involved in. A third theory, but I don't rank it real high, is maybe rejection. Maybe somebody wanted to be with her and she rejected them or offended them or said something because she did have a sharp tongue from what we were told and she did not mince her words. So it's possible that she said something and someone really took it as offensive. But again, it's like, it's a huge risk to go commit homicide over, you know, getting offended. So I tend to think there's something more um, that led to this person just going into a rage. And so you you have communication with the local police with this case. And have you provided them with new information or, or your perspectives, asking them to kind of dig into it further? Oh, yeah. Yes. We, uh, <laughs> when we met with we met with them in late April. Um, we both went up to Port Orchard and it was kind of strange because we, we, we knew we were going to have a meeting with the police, but, you know, we weren't really expecting much. And we went to the police department and they took us into a conference room and there were people there was an, there was a guy from the FBI there. Um, the chief of police there in Port Orchard was there, plus the two Andes, uh, as we like to call them, because that's literally their names, um, <laughs> male and female detectives who worked there. Well, actually, uh, the other Andy, isn't he a sergeant? He's Jen? a sergeant, but I think he's, he's over the investigations unit. So, yeah. And then they had people from the um, the Washington State Attorney's um, office. They had two people there from them. So they had this whole group of them waiting on us. And it was nice. We sat down and we talked to them. And Jen, we 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 went through our theories and mm-hmm. uh, we went through all of the investigative steps that we had taken. And another thing that we always do, and it's and the, I will say this, this is mostly Jennifer. I'm a journalist, so my my relationship with police sometimes is adversarial because when they're not doing their job, I have to write about it and I have to point yeah. it out. And they don't like that. Um, and Jen works for, um, you know, her, you know, her local uh, her county sheriff's department. So a lot of times she will be the actually be the conduit handing them all the information that we're able to generate. But we always give them everything that we yeah. ever come Every interview we do, mm-hmm. all the expert, te- anything our experts tell us, we give them everything. And, you know, we never hold back because yeah. our goal is not to be, uh, we don't care about getting credit for anything. We just want to come in, provide what we can, and then we will we will slip back into the shadows and let them do their job and solve the case. Yeah, we're there to augment, not to compete. This is absolutely not a competition with any law enforcement agency. We just know that we have the time and resources to do stuff that they can't, and that's not their fault. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I always create like a Google Drive folder, which is pretty much massive now. And, <laughs> I can imagine you, know, you probably pay you know, for the extra space, huh? <laughs> I, I have to, yeah. <laughs> yes, I have to. Um, but yeah, like if we have, I mean, anything. Like, And we always set up a tip email. And so... Some cases we get a lot of tips, some we don't, but have gotten some from Linda's. So I always, you know, anything I get through the tip email goes to police. I mean, like George said, pretty much everything we collect, if we talk to someone and we're able to record it, you know, we'll give them the recordings. And there's a, there's several people in this case that police have not connected with or been able to that me and George did. 
And so we'll write up reports from those conversations and give that to police. And sometimes they'll come back and say, you know, if you talk to that person again, can you try to ask them about this? And we have a big advantage because we're not law enforcement in this capacity. So not carrying around a badge and a gun, you know, we're, we're lower profile. And and in some cases, people feel that we're, we're much more approachable. And it's been really successful. So yeah, but we we share everything. And if they ask us to go get something, we will usually find a way to get it. (laughs) Yeah, we do. I mean, and one advantage that we have is that we don't, there's no Miranda involved with us. Mm -hmm. You know, we can go and knock, I mean, quite literally around this time last week, Jennifer uh, we were in, she had come to Arkansas. We had to, cause she was going to interview Billy. We had to interview him separately because she interviewed him because she's on his visitation list. I interviewed him. I put in a request as a journalist to interview him so I could actually record our conversation because they don't allow recording devices in the prison. And so while she was here, um, there was a guy that we wanted to talk to. He's not a suspect in Rebecca's case, but he's related to someone who, who was a suspect. And of course, he had talked a bunch of smack online to me. And I think he talked some smack to you too, Jennifer. Oh, and yeah. Threatened to sue us for defamation and all this stuff. You're like, yeah. go for it. <laughs> Let's see what yeah. I did. I'm like, I'm still waiting for my paperwork to arrive. <laughs> I was like, do you need my address or what? <laughs> yeah. I told him, I said, I can't wait to see you in that piece of you know what. And I didn't say, you know what, uh, you know, brother of yours in court someday. Um, so anyway, we went and knocked on this. We were driving through and we're like, because Jennifer wanted to go out to the the, the site where the uh, where the girl um, where her body was dumped, and she also wanted to go where the suitcase was found because there was this missing suitcase in that case, and so she wanted to go down there to knock on this guy's door because we were headed back to my house, and so we pulled up, went in, knocked on the door. There's a ring camera there, so they saw we were there. We left a note with our phone numbers, and Jen wrote on there. William told us something very interesting about what you had to say. Oh. <laughs> And so five minutes later, Jen's, we're driving at, we're in separate vehicles because we had Miranda Ward with us actually too. And we're in separate vehicles and she calls me. She's like, uh, he's calling me right now. And so I immediately turn around and we go back. And of course this guy's pacing out this front yard and, you know, and he's a pretty decent sized guy. He's definitely bigger than me and Jen. And um, so we get out and he's pacing around. His wife is out there and Jen is hot to go. She's, I mean, she jumped out of that SUV and I was like, oh man, this is going to be bad because normally I'm the hot-headed one and she's normally the level-headed one. <laughs> so then she goes over there and I mean, and he immediately sh- sticks his hand out. He's shaking. And then at one point we we're kind of joking. Of course, I actually had to bring Jen down a little bit because she was really wanting to get testy with him. And he was nervous. He said, I don't want my life to get ruined. And he said, and he looked at me and he goes, I'm sorry, I don't have any money to sue you. And I said, well, thanks. <laughs> at least it he's was, honest was, in that capacity. Weird. He was much nicer right. without a keyboard in front of him. So, <laughs> yeah, they usually are. They usually are. Yeah. But um, yeah, anyways, point being what we, we have no fear of knocking on anybody's door. And um, it's usually really, really has never been a problem, George. I don't think we've ever had a door slammed on us, actually. So, no, we haven't. People are usually really cooperative. So for Linda's case, where are we at now? What are police saying? What are they doing? And what are you doing? Have you just kind of transferred it back over to them? Have you done your job? Or No, 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 no. We're still very active on it. On the police side, so we never handle evidence, obviously, since we're not part of their, any department. Well, I'm part of my own department, but I mean, 
But these cases that we take on, we're, we're not members of that law enforcement agency. So we never have anything to do with actual physical evidence. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot, like I said, collected from Linda's house. So this year, the police department got a grant to have a bunch of it sent in for retesting with new technology. Right. And we haven't, they haven't shared like the specific results with us, but they did tell us that um, they've gotten results back from some of that testing. Not all of it's finished yet. And that has provided new leads. So we're really thankful and hopeful for that. And then we just, we just continue to raise awareness. There's still, I mean, I have this spreadsheet of like 90 people that we've talked to, but there's still a few on there that I haven't been able to get a hold of. In fact, I was thinking the other day, like we might need to go back up to Washington and knock on more doors, but let me know if you're around, I'll come meet you. (laughs) That would be wonderful. Um, So we do have some other people that we're still trying to track down and get a hold of. But part of our methodology, too, is developing a wide network of people in the local area where the victim lived. So we've met tons of people from Port Orchard. And it's actually nice because it's a small community where a lot of the community knows each other. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple people that we have. We have a couple friends of ours now who are keeping an eye on a few people for us. <laughs> so they'll they'll report back periodically if they had interaction with the person we're interested in or whatever. And obviously I can't say names or get into too many details because I don't want to tip our hand, but there is a lot of stuff that we do that's never publicized and people don't even realize is going on, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but there is, there is a lot going on. So um, while police are waiting on forensic testing, they're also conducting interviews too of some people and, you know, doing whatever they got to do on our end, but we're continuing to grow our network, raise awareness get new people on board with new ideas um, and hopefully find that person that has the tip, you know, that breaks it open. I know that's one of the reasons we connected was we have a a ripe audience of locals who may want to get involved now that they know a little bit about Linda's case. So where can they do that? Um, What are there groups they can join social media they can follow the best if you want to join our team and help us, the best way is go to our Facebook group for Linda. We do this for every victim. It's Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm. Um, Join the group. There is a ton of information in there. There's the photos of the house that we can release. We've released those. We have sketches of the house, the layout showing where she was found, where the fire started, like all kinds of information you can peruse through. I've written several articles on the different aspects of her case. And then, of course, they can listen to our podcast called Break the Case. And season three is devoted to Linda, I think. George, we have 10 episodes now, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Working on ideas for a couple more. Um, Like I've sort of explained, a lot of the stuff going on right now can't be publicized. So we don't have a ton of content to put out at the moment, but we are are working on that. Um, I would actually like to try to find like a retired FBI profiler who would be willing to come on and discuss the behavioral analysis of the case um george and i are pretty good at that yes but we are not quantico trained so i'd love to find one but they're hard you know it's far and few between and really hard to find one that will go on record and say anything about a case without having a case file that would make an excellent zoom conversation i love you you guys sent me some zoom conversations and i found that to be so interesting the interactive you know bouncing ideas off of each other I, i could see why this is very useful and why you want a lot of people involved. Yep. We have done some live Zooms on Linda's case, one where where we had Alan talking about the arson, one where we had Jeff. Um, 
And those are on my YouTube channel, which is Jen Buchholz PI. And I'm not a PI anymore, but I don't, I don't want to change the name. It's a catchy name. <laughs> people won't, well, people won't <laughs> find me then or whatever, you know, and anyways. Um, but, and that channel is devoted strictly to our work on cases. So you'll find videos from other cases we worked where we did recreations of the crime or like in Rebecca's case, you know, where, um, where her body was found and stuff like that. So if you're really interested in like visual aspects of investigations on cases, you can check out our others too, but there are several in there on windows. Um, on Twitter, my handles, the same Jen Buchholz PI. I only use it for case related stuff and um, break the cases on Twitter as well. But that platform's not good for like interactive conversations. So that's why sure. we like the Facebook group is the best one. And we welcome anybody to post ideas, theories. Like we don't censor. I mean, unless somebody gets really belligerent or something, but right. we don't censor posts. Like you want to post something, post it. So we encourage that. Going back to Rebecca's case last Saturday night after we knocked on Randy's door, we came home and we started having some ideas about um, about the suitcase that was found. Mm -hmm. And we had never really examined it. We had all the pictures from the from where they found it. And we just came to several unbelievable epiphanies about this suitcase and its condition. We don't claim to know everything because we obviously had these pictures, Jen, what, for a year and mm -hmm. been. It, there were so many other parts of that case file that we were digging into to try to figure things out because we we feel like we don't have the entire story on that case. And that's another thing that we do, too. I mean, there's an arrest in Rebecca's case. That was three years ago. And here we are in, um, three years later. We're kind of obsessive when we take on a case. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we have we just feel like we have to figure out every single detail. And so that's what you know, we're still pursuing that in Linda's, too, because. Although we have some very, I think, important clues that we discussed today. Obviously, we don't know the whole story yet, but we're getting there. And I think we can figure it out. Well, and I and I guess one point I want to make about saying all these things is that we know Linda's Killer is going to listen to this podcast. And we just want Linda's Killer to know that this is what you're dealing with for probably the rest of your natural life. So get ready for that. The one promise we make to a victim's family, we can never obviously promise an arrest or anything, but we say we will exhaust every resource possible yeah. until we run out of things to do. Usually something significant happens before we run out of things to do. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and we still have a lot of things to do in Linda's case. So we're just going to keep pursuing that and keep on with it. So Jen, something we talked about earlier is there's always somebody who knows something in a case. And in this particular case, there are a lot of clues that somebody may not even know that they noticed at the time. So for folks listening who maybe lived in that area in 2008, what kinds of things should they be thinking about? Should they be aware of? Well, we are sure that Linda's killer got blood on them, um, most definitely from Linda herself. And then there's a good chance that the killer cut themselves probably on the palm of their hand. So if you happen to remember somebody that had a cut to the palm of their hand during that time or had, you know, bloody clothes that weren't really explained or blood in their car, because if they drove to the scene, they had to leave the scene in their car, might've gotten blood in their car or somebody who had clothing that smelled like accelerant, like I don't know if gas or something like that, or even like smoke from setting the fire. Um, you know, there's been countless cases where somebody saw something really critical, but they didn't realize it was important until much later on. 
And so it's just a little shout out to residents of the local area. If you remember anything out of the ordinary like that, please let us know. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this case. I think our, our listeners will really appreciate it. And I think you'll probably get an influx of new listeners to your podcast because it really is awesome. It's as close as you can get to being part of that, that group unless you actually join the group on Facebook, which you can. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for sharing with us today. Definitely. Thank you for hosting us and taking the time to let us discuss Linda's case. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for so much. In the interview, Jennifer mentions that her strongest theory is that Linda may have slept with a partnered man and that partner was seeking revenge on her. Now, something I think may actually support that theory or the theory that she knew her killer in general is there were two pornographic movies that were ordered to her cable account in the days after she was found murdered. So someone had her account information. Was it a friend? Was it the lover? Like, what? And would they have known, or did they just coincidentally not know she was dead but had access to her account? But that's back on cable ordering. You either had to call it in, or I guess it was 2008, maybe you could order on on-demand. Yeah, you could do on-demand, but you still had to approve it through... Like a code? Several. I mean, I've only ordered a couple movies ever on pay-per-view and never an adult film. But sure. From what I from what I remember in those days, it was like just multiple steps and you would put something in like, a yeah, you had like a lock code or some sort of security code. What year was this? She was, was 2008. Yeah. I mean, you would have had to just watch it locally too on that. Yeah. On one of those boxes. So, well. Right? I mean, that's weird. I don't think yeah, so. If it's, but if it's cable, I it was think, cable. I'm wondering if in that year you had access via the internet, maybe. I, I, mean, I don't think so. I don't so. think so. So I want to well, know yeah, the YouTube details like around 2007, this. 2008, right? So like that was pretty new, I feel. So this is something I should reach out back to Jen and see if she has additional inf like context on yeah, how that Yeah, because I'm trying works. to think like 2008, moved back home from Vegas and the internet was accessible and smartphones were happening, but it was still... yeah difficult like videos took forever to load or yeah, streaming there was on demand. streaming wasn't happening well we know the house was destroyed so somebody wasn't there doing it that's what's unless bizarre. maybe the cable box was taken because oh that but could no be. but wouldn't it be connected to the home though it'd be connected to that internet well back in the old day i remember my mom had a like an hbo thing she screwed onto the back of our tv and that got us hbo like you could huh. take it off and go to someone else's house it was very weird like an original fire stick yeah, yeah. basically yeah, I just think the ability to do that might have existed, but it would have been complicated. Yeah, I, would I need imagine. to know more about not for, it. Yeah, not for actually, a layman. That feels like an important detail. It is an important detail. You heard Jen mention in the interview that anybody can join this Facebook group and be part of this cold case team. What they like to do is host these big Zoom calls where people can listen in. They'll usually have an expert on. They talk through it. They give their opinion and people can chime in. So if I was there and I have an idea, I could bring it up. So they do this so they can discuss topics like this and do some brainstorming. So they recently posted a copy of the cable bill, which we'll have up in our our blog as well. So you can see the dates they were ordered, um, the total cost. It's just very interesting because I just don't have the context around how and that And also worked. why porn? Was that to degrade her after death? To or, be like, oh, look, she's buying porn? Or was it a lover that they watched that kind of stuff together and he had access to it? And like know. two days after she's dead, well, if he's a murderer and doesn't care, I guess he's fine to watch that kind of thing. But 
One commenter in the group mentioned that they believed you had to order via phone back then. And then someone else said, no, I don't think you did. I think so, it might have been depending on where you were. Exactly. Yeah. I so think that we was need still more. in an era where it wasn't accessible to everybody. So maybe in a bigger city, you could do on demand and just beep, bop, boop, push some buttons. Yeah. But yeah, maybe if you didn't have a bigger cable company or you weren't in a city, it might have been that you had to call to do it. Mm hmm. So another thing that came up is Linda did dabble in drugs and alcohol. And in 2005, she was arrested and charges were brought against her. Now, these charges miraculously disappeared one day to, quote, warrant issues. And it's thought that she may have provided information on someone else to get out of the charges. So there is a theory that she was potentially murdered by someone getting revenge on her for getting them in trouble with the law. Oh, that she... To have the charges dropped, she, she snitched squealed. on somebody mm -hmm. and then they, oh, okay. So that is a theory that's out there. Um, and in 2009, police announced they had a person of interest. Now, it was never publicly mentioned who that person was, but not long after, they got a warrant for her ex-boyfriend's house in Gig Harbor. Now, the ex is named Keith. Keith refused to take a lie detector, but did get interviewed several times. Linda had a friend who um, lived, was also a neighbor, I believe his name was Don. And he mentioned that Linda did not want her ex-boyfriend Keith to know where she was moving to in Bremerton. Like they had been having problems, ongoing issues. Um, but most people who knew Keith didn't think he had it in him to kill her. But, you know, we hear that a lot around here. Right. Um, so you never know. Now, unfortunately, Keith has passed away. He it was natural causes, but I believe it was an overdose, like an accidental overdose. Um, there's some I don't know if those are conflicting information or what, but other people have said they've never seen him take drugs. He didn't even drink that much. Was it really accidental or was he murdered, too? Oh. So that's another thing that comes out of the podcast that Jen and, and Jared have together. So I highly recommend listening to it. We're not one to like spiral into those kinds of uh, we don't want to incite panic over theories. Right. 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 Um, but I I do know that police had at least six persons of interest at one time. I'm not sure who's been eliminated from that list, but that's why I really think you guys should go um, listen to that other podcast. As of today, the information that Jen and George have collected has been passed to the Port Orchard Police Department. According to Linda's family in the recent podcast episode from Break the Case, they have a lot of confidence right now that the police department is very active on the case. And I think that's thanks to Jen and George and all the hard work they've put in. I really do think we're going to see this case getting solved in the near future. Again, Linda's case is featured in season three of the podcast Break the Case, which I hope you'll check out. It has far more detail than what I've told you today, and you're going to hear a lot of plausible theories. The podcast is unique because it's real time. It, well, as real time as it gets for a cold case investigating team. It's a 15 year old cold case. You're going to learn information as the investigators did. They aren't recording them retrospectively. They were doing it along the way and talking to people who knew Linda and experts and things like fire and knives. It's very engaging. Now, currently, there are 10 episodes in season three, and I know Jen and George are looking to record a new episode soon, and you can find links to their show in our show notes and on our blog. There is a $7,500 reward for the tip that leads to the arrest and conviction of Linda's killer. And remember, if you were in the area in April of 2008, you may very well have seen something that you have no idea how important it was to the case. 
Tips can be sent to 360-876-1700 or by emailing tips at justiceforlinda.com. I would like to start by giving you kudos for working with this other show because I think there's a lot of misconception that podcasters, especially in true crime, are kind of naturally rivals or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool to get to hear how another show works and to be introduced to other people that are doing really awesome work and to share that story in this way to be like, hey, guys, this is our neck of the woods. Yeah. I mean, this wild case that is horrific. It works out great. And that's why we love going to these, you know, crime con and the the true crime festivals. Oh, that's where you met them, right? Yeah. Well, uh, they know actually Jen reached out by email and said, hey, I know you're a Pacific Northwest or you do Pacific Northwest cases. This case happened there. We want to spread the word. So it was just a natural fit. They do military cases. And, you know, we don't discriminate when it comes to the topic, really. It's just uh, we like in our area. So it worked out perfectly. But yeah, yeah, I agree. You can partner so easily with these people and share information and um, spread the word further than, you know, your own state, which is nice. Yeah. Well, that's a shocking case and horrible case. And it's really awesome to hear that even at 15 years, which isn't that long. It is kind of a long time, you know, kind of in between mm-hmm. that people are are still looking at it and still care and still. Absolutely. And they're not going to let it go. I mean, when you when you finish that interview listening to it, you'll hear George say, and that killer's listening. I know you're listening. We're not going to give up. We have nothing better to do. Like, this is what we are passionate about. Yeah. So I, I think he's right. That's really cool. That's really great that they use their skills for that. Absolutely. They're, so. they're living our dream, really. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be awesome. I hope that killer or anyone that knows anything is listening and calls it in because, yeah, like you said, somebody knows something even if they're like, oh, that wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Maybe it was, though. Maybe or it leads a to the thing that is. Cuts on their hand, blood on their clothes, blood in their car. Yeah. Smoky, something. smelling, gasoline. You don't know. Moved. Something. Maybe they up moved. and moved suddenly. Yep. Yeah. You want to give us that number one more time? Again, tips can be called in at 360-876-1700 or email tips at justiceforlinda.com. Totally anonymous. And you can also go to Facebook. If you don't want to be anonymous, you can submit messages to the team there. You can get engaged with the posts. You can offer your own ideas on some of the evidence they post. There will be pictures shared there. Um, You'll get access to the video calls where they talk about the talking to the knife expert, talking to the arson expert. So there's a lot of information if you're interested in learning more. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Slowly fade from the limelight. Those dedicate their time to these cases. That's not what I meant to say. Their work contributed to the salt. Nope. Did I say there? Uh, but you did say contributed. Oh, I did. Contrib- contributed? Yeah. Their work contributed. I can't say it. Contributed? Their work contributed. <laughs> <laughs> Their work contributed. <laughs> You're another, overthinking what's it. What's another word? I can't do it. Aided Con- in. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Helped. Beyond. In the house. There was a comma. Once that, f- are we done? We're dead. Yeah, we're done. Next Let week, next week we'll do that.
before and never brought to mind. Let old acquaintance be forgot for old Gross. And suck my balls. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>